God made us. Simple statement of fact, but that simple statement of fact is very profound. And one of the things that means is that God knows us best, and He knows what's best for us. And He hasn't kept that knowledge to Himself. He's shared that with us through His Word. And so, as we read the Word, this is sort of like reading the owner's manual. So, listen now to God's holy and inerrant Word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation." These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together as we prepare to come beneath God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would come and you would be with us by your spirit, that you would lead us by your spirit into your word. Um, We pray that you would remind us this morning that no matter how we come through, came through these doors this morning, whether we were dreading being here or whether we are hurt or anxious or afraid or hopeful or believing or doubting or skeptical, that you would remind us this morning that we really are all the same. We are all far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so together we need 
the hope of the gospel, and we need to be reminded together this morning that because of Jesus' person and work, we can be at the same time both far more broken than we could ever imagine, but also far more loved and far more secure and approved of and delighted in than we could have ever dared dream possible. So we pray that you would do this for us, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And children ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to <clears throat> Children's Church. If you make your way, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I'm getting over a cold. Um, hopefully you got that, kiddos. Make your way to the back and you'll be taken to your class. <clears throat> uh, it's, you know, this water here, it's always a gamble. I don't know if it was left over from the week before or not, but uh, <clears throat> I'm risking it this morning. Um, well, a couple of weeks ago, we started a sermon series through uh, the book of Genesis. And so we've been looking at this, this book for a couple of weeks. Um, in Genesis, it's the story of origins or the story of beginnings, right? And, and the first two chapters especially tell us what the world and what humanity was meant to be like. Um, and we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about really what it means to be fully human. So we're not going to talk about everything in these verses that we just read, but, but we're going to get to those things in the next couple of weeks. Um, because we really want to understand um, over these next few weeks, we want to talk about what is at the essence of our humanity. And this morning, I want us to see that we were made to work, that work is really at the heart and at the very essence of what it means to be human. Um, <clears throat> a guy named Derek Thompson, he wrote an interesting article in the Atlantic Journal about a year ago, um, and it was entitled, A World Without Work. Um, and he began with a description of Youngstown, Ohio, which was a community that enjoyed incredible prosperity in the 20th century um, due to its steel mill industry. Um, but in September of 1977, one of the major steel mills in Youngstown announced that it would be closing its doors. So over the next five years, the city lost 50,000 jobs. Um, and Thompson wrote that Youngstown was transformed not only by economic disruption, but also by a psychological and cultural breakdown. Depression spousal abuse and suicide rates, all this stuff is documented, began to soar. Um, the caseload in the area's mental health center tripled in a decade. There was, in fact, a boom in one industry uh, in Youngstown. In the 1990s, they had to build four, extra, four brand new prisons in Youngstown. John Russo, who's a professor of labor studies, he commented, Youngstown's story is America's story because it shows that when jobs go away, the cultural cohesion of a place is destroyed. The, cultural, the culture breakdown matters even more than the economic breakdown. Now, I want you to listen closely here to how Thompson concludes his article. This is what he writes. One theory of work holds that people tend to see themselves in jobs, careers, or callings. Individuals who say their work is just a job 
emphasize that they are working for money rather than aligning themselves with any higher purpose. Those with pure careerist ambitions are focused not on income, but on the status that comes with promotions and the growing renown of their peers. But one pursues a calling not only for pay or status, but also for the intrinsic fulfillment of the work itself. That's what Genesis is telling us. There is an intrinsic fulfillment and value and dignity in work itself. Our work as human beings has a higher purpose. Our work isn't merely a job or even a career. It's a calling is what Genesis is talking about. We were made, we were designed to work. You know, the author Dorothy Sayers, um, she asked the question, what is the Christian's understanding of work? And she answered, it is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. We were made to work. We desperately need a biblical theology of work if we are going to embrace fully what it means to be human and what it means to be made in God's image. So I want us to talk about three things this morning as it relates to work in this passage. I want us to talk about work's goodness, work's function, and then finally, work's purpose. Work's goodness, its function, and its purpose. So first, work's goodness. You know, it's tempting in a broken world to see work as a necessary evil or maybe as a means to some other end, whether that's material wealth or security or status or power or whatever. But Genesis claims that work itself is inherently good. Genesis 1 and 2, you know, these chapters, they're describing paradise. This is life as it was meant to be, a world of order and beauty and harmony that sang of God's glory and His love everywhere. And Genesis says one of the main chords of this song was work. God Himself was working, right? He was forming and shaping the world and filling it with deep beauty everywhere. Genesis 1 gives us, Genesis chapter 1 gives us this wide-angled view of God's work at creation. And then Genesis chapter 2, you know, gives us the big picture. But Genesis chapter 2, it pulls us in for this tighter shot and focuses particularly on God's creation of man. And what do we find here? That God's hands are in the dust, that He has dirt under His fingernails. He was the potter at work shaping and forming the clay and forming man. He's the God, verse 8, we're told in chapter 2, with hands on and in the earth sculpting a garden out of the earth's wildness. That in itself is particularly fascinating. Christianity's story is of a God working with the dust to form and sculpt a garden and a man, right? But we keep going here, and we see this. It was in paradise, right? In a world that was singing in perfect harmony and beauty of God's love and glory. And it's here that God reveals works goodness, right? Before any sin or brokenness had come into the world, Genesis 1, 26, verse 28, tells us that God made man in His image to rule over creation, right, to subdue it, to exercise dominion over it, to harness its wonder and to cultivate 
its potential. And in chapter 2, verse 15, we get the tighter close-up shot, right? God took man, and He put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. To be fully human is to embrace the goodness of work. Why did the loss of jobs in Youngstown mean so much more than just economic breakdown? Why did the culture itself break down? Why were people breaking down? Why were lives falling out of order and into greater and greater disorder? It's because they lost the goodness of work, right? Work is at the very essence of our humanity. God made us to be like Him. And without work's goodness, our lives and our worlds begin to come apart at the seams. You know, the quote on the front of your bulletin, it comes from a great little book about work by uh, Dr. Timothy Keller called Every Good Endeavor. And in that quote, Keller says, our work can be a calling only if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interest. And there's a lot just in that, that sentence. But, but listen, I love that word reimagined. Thompson's article said that, you know, one theory of work is work as a job, a means to getting money. Another theory of work is a career, a means to getting status or power. And still another is work as calling. And this view, the view of calling, embraces the intrinsic fulfillment and value and dignity of work itself. How does your job move from, or how does your work move from being just a job or even a career and actually become a calling in your life? It's by reimagining your work. You have to learn how to see your work differently. Some of you have heard me talk about my experience uh, when I was a kid with the magic eye posters. I don't know if they make these things anymore. Um, But they were these very colorful posters, and they had these intricate designs, but they seemed to be a picture of nothing. And what you actually had to do with these posters is you had to learn how to stare at them in just the right way. You had to learn how to look at them in just the right way. And when you did, you would see a three-dimensional object appear uh, to you. And, And I was fascinated by these when I was a kid, um, because once I learned to see them the right way, right, it unlocked the picture within. It unlocked the hidden beauty that was within. And for you and I to unlock the beauty of work as calling, and not merely as a job or career, you have to reimagine your work. You have to see it differently and embrace work's goodness. We've mentioned this the past couple of weeks in our series in Genesis, that it's really, really important for us to understand Genesis' original context, right? That it was, we we need to be reminded that it was written by Moses. It was written by Moses first and foremost for a group of people called the Israelites whom God had just recently brought out of slavery after 400 years in Egypt. And now he's writing this down for this newly liberated people. Moses was getting them to reimagine their work, to see it differently. Because listen, if anyone knew what it was like to have their hands in the dust and dirt under their fingernails, it was this nation who spent their lives making bricks for Pharaoh, making bricks without straw. But here's the thing, right? Moses wasn't saying, now that you're free, it's the good life, no more work. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying, now your work needs to be reimagined. The one who made you and all things, he had his hands in the dirt too. Your slavery, your toiling, your working for Pharaoh, it was twisted, it was corrupted, it was distorted. And guess what? So is our work in a broken world. And to see work's goodness through the brokenness of this world, it has to be reimagined so that you can see its intrinsic value and dignity. Now, before we move on, let me just, it's kind of a side note, but listen, God's hands in the dirt. You know what that means? That means all work is elevated. In America, we tend to look down on certain kinds of work, what we might call menial or manual or physical labor. This is saying all work has dignity, whether it's volunteer work at the church or at your kid's school, or whether it's digging ditches, or whether it's cleaning houses, or, or, or whether it's dry cleaning clothes, all work has dignity. And those that have these jobs ought to be treated with the utmost respect and dignity, because God Himself had His hands in the dirt too. Okay, second, let's talk about work's function. What is our work actually designed to do? See, whether you're a doctor or you dig ditches or you do dry cleaning or, or you're a teacher or you're a businessman or woman, what is your work's function in, in the world? Moses tells us this story of God's work in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, 2, Genesis 1 verse 2 says that the world was without form and void. That is, it was shapeless and it was empty. And so God came and He created. He gave it form and He began to fill it with beauty, right? He brought order out of the chaos and filled His creation with beauty. Humanity was made in God's image. We were made to be like God, to do the kinds of things God did, right? The function of our work is to bring order to chaos, is to fill the world with beauty. In chapter 2, verse 5, we read that bushes and plants. They had not yet sprung up. And it gives us two reasons, one of which is particularly important for us this morning. There was no rain yet. That's one reason. But here's the second reason. There was no man to work the ground. God's creation was waiting, right? It it needed man to come and work it, to harness and order its wonder, right, to cultivate and bring out its beauty, to make the potential actual, right? God's creation, right, it was waiting for man. In order for us to fully live human lives, we've got to go further into this reimagining that we talked about in the first point. We not only need to see work's goodness, but we need to reimagine work's function to bring order and beauty into the world. So when the farmer sows his seed and produces a crop. He is bringing order to the world and filling the world with beauty. And when the musician works with the physics of sound in order to, uh, and puts it in order uh, to make a melody that can be played or sung, right? They're filling the world with beauty and order, right? The lawyer who works for justice and upholds laws that keeps us safe. I mean, that is 
bringing order to the world and filling it with beauty. The teacher who puts in so many hours of work in preparing her lessons and extra time spent after school tutoring students. She's working to bring out these children's potential, right, into the world. The medical professional, he takes broken bodies, disordered bodies that aren't working properly, and he brings healing and order so that they can work properly again. The landscaper who works with God's creation to bring out its beauty and its function in the world. The web designer, right, who harnesses technology to create commerce in the world. The manager or the salesperson who takes over a, a poorly functioning department and makes it work efficiently again, and raises sales. The stay-at-home mom who cleans the house and makes sure it stays in order, right? Listen, I was a biology major, and I had to take microbiology. Um, And if no one cleans the house, listen to me, people will die. I I promise you of this. Um, All the germs and the viruses and the bacteria that will breed in your home. Someone has to bring order and beauty there, right? Um, I still can't eat leftovers after that class, which is another issue. But you, really, you get my point here, right? Your job or your career, for it to be a calling, you have to reimagine its function. Its function to bring order to chaos and to bring be- fill the world with beauty. You know, admittedly, all we can do this morning is kind of scratch the surface with a few things this morning about what this means. But, but listen, Monday morning is coming fast, right? And you're going to be going back to your work and hopefully to your callings, right? And this is going to have to be worked out in a thousand details, right? What should be said or not said in the pitch that you make to that potential client, right? What decisions need to be made about a particular product being released? What decisions need to be made about the impact of a new business idea that you have? How do you reimagine your work so that it takes you into the very details of your work, right? To think through its ethics and integrity and wisdom and beauty and how it serves others and how it leads to life flourishing in this world. Let me give you a little something to think about. You know, the truths that we're talking about this morning, they come to us in the form of a story. And that's how, the, that's how most of the Bible has been written to us. You know, to reimagine your work's function you need to think about the Bible's story, its storyline, and seek to realign your work with that story. Listen, theologians often talk about how the arc of the Bible's story is really seen in four distinct movements, right? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So here's a few questions for you to think through about your work. How does your work point to the glory and wonder of God's creation? In what ways is your work actually working against the brokenness of this world to bring life and healing? How does your work tell the story of redemption? In what ways is your work contributing to a world that will one day be restored in all its glory, in all its beauty? How how can I work with both excellence and also Christian distinctiveness in my work? How does my work serve others as individuals? How does my work serve society at large? I mean, there are a thousand more questions to be taken down into the details of your work, but for your work to be more than a job, 
and more than just a career and actually be a calling, you have to reimagine its function by getting aligned with this story. One of my favorite stories is a story about Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. Um, and the story goes that one day he was asked, what would you do if you knew the world would end tomorrow? And Luther said something like, if I knew the world would end tomorrow, I would plant a tree today, right? It, it, here's what he was doing. He was reimagining his work and his life through a story, a story that said that God is going to restore his broken world, right? And our work for him today will somehow be pulled into the new heavens and the new earth by the resurrecting and renewing power of Jesus. We have to work to reimagine our work. How are, you, how are you doing with that, with letting the storyline of the Bible shape your understanding of your work and let you reimagine work's function? Okay, finally, let's talk for a moment about work's purpose. Here's the final and ultimate place um, that I want to take you when it comes to reimagining your work. You have to see that your work's purpose is all about serving God pretty easy point, but let me, let me bring it through to you. There's this great place in Ephesians where Paul wrote about work, and I can't unpack all the context uh, of what he says here about slaves, but, but listen here. He wrote, "'Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. We all work for someone, right? You feel that Bob Dylan song coming on, right? No matter who you are, you're going to have to serve somebody. You, you can look it up. But um, anyway, we all work. We all work for someone, right? And Paul was saying that's true. But you've got to reimagine the purpose of your work. No matter who your earthly boss is, you serve a heavenly king, and his name is Jesus. He's saying you have to reimagine. You've got to look through your earthly bosses to see your real boss, Jesus. Paul could say that because he knew the story. And in, not, not just the Bible story, but in particular, he knew the story of Genesis chapter 2. See, many scholars are very wise when they point out that the vocabulary in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, is actually very unique. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The words there, that are the Hebrew words there used for work and keep, these are words used in the Bible elsewhere to describe the duties of the priesthood in God's sanctuary, right, in places like Numbers 3. But he, here's why this is important. To quote Dr. John Walton, he says, he writes, the verbs work and keep do not indicate what people are to do to provide for themselves, but what they are to do for God. We need to reimagine our work and see that its purpose is first and foremost to serve God, to honor Him, to bring glory to Him. We need to learn to look through our earthly bosses to see our heavenly boss, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we serve with our work. Now listen, there is a real danger 
when we start talking about the fact that we were made to work, the danger is that we would take something good, our work, and we would turn it into an ultimate for ourselves. The danger is that we would take something good in God's creation, and instead of using it to worship Him and to serve Him, we would, as Paul wrote to the Romans, exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. That is, we are tempted to turn work into an idol, and that's when we really and truly become slaves. We look to, when we look to our work to define our lives, when we look to our work to give us an identity in this world, maybe we treat our work as a job, and we become slaves, chasing more and more material wealth to give us comfort or security or options, we might say. Or maybe we treat our work as career, and we become slaves to chasing status and acclaim and approval and power. The Israelites whom Moses was writing to certainly had a taste of work that was distorted, that was corrupted and twisted in their slavery in Egypt. And so do you and I as sinners in a broken world. For your work to become more, it has to be reimagined. Work is good. Its function is to bring order to God's world and to fill it with beauty, but it was never meant to give you an identity. It was never meant to define you or to function in your life as an ultimate. God Himself is the ultimate, and the purpose of your work and my work is to serve Him in everything that we do. You know, a lot of talk this morning about work and reimagining work, you're probably wondering how many times I could say reimagining in one sermon, but listen, let, let me end this morning by telling you one more thing that you need in order to embrace the fully human life and the work you were made to do. Here's what you need. You need rest. We are made to be like God, right? To work like God. And Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 says, And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. I can only do so much this morning. Certainly and surely, this does mean that you need weekly rest built into your rhythms of life, right? You need to regularly learn how to put down your work, to cease from your striving in this world, and to rest. But there's something else that I want you to notice here. On every day, on every day of creation, there was a refrain that closed the day, and there was evening and there was morning. Six days of creation, and it's there on every day, but it's missing from the seventh day. You know what that is? This is what I think it is. I think it's an invitation. It's an invitation to you to enter into God's rest. It is still open to you and to me. This is what the author of Hebrews wrote, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore, he writes, make every effort to enter that rest. So how do you enter that rest? We trace the arc of the Bible's story to its hero, Jesus. He came to His broken creation, and on the cross, the Maker of all things was unmade. He died for us to redeem us, and He was raised from the dead. And He promises promises us that one day, someday, He's going to come again, and He's going to restore and renew all things. So put down all your working and your striving to get an identity for yourself in your work, to try to define yourself in your work, to try to prove that you matter through your work and that you have value through your work and significance. Come to Jesus and you get an identity that will last forever. Come to Jesus and you will know when you rest in Him that you matter, that you have value, and that you are loved completely in Him. That's the rest we need if we're ever going to embrace what it means that we were made to work. Now, let me end with one last illustration to point you to the transforming power of this rest in Jesus for your work. It's an old movie, but it's a classic. Uh, You haven't seen it, go, well, actually, I don't know where you can find it. Um, The Chariots of Fire. I don't know if it's on Netflix or whatever. Anyway, in the movie, there are these two track athletes, all right? Another sip. I'll probably be sick next week. Um, In the movie, there are these two track athletes, and they are compared and contrasted throughout the telling of this story. Um, Eric Little is one character, and Harold Abrahams is the other character. And they have the same job, they have the same abilities, they have the same opportunities, and they both wind up getting the same rewards. They both win gold medals in the Olympics. Um, But they're contrasted in two very, very important scenes in the movie. In one scene, Eric Little was talking to his sister who wanted him to go to China to be a missionary. And Eric is explaining to his sister that he does think one day he will go to China and be a missionary, but he's also saying that right now his work is running. And this is how he said it. He said, Jenny, Jenny, I believe that God made me for China, but He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. It sounds much better in a Scottish accent, but you've got to watch the movie to get that. Uh, the contrast, it's set up in another scene with Harold Abrahams. And Abrahams, in this scene, was talking with his coach, who was also his friend, just before a race. And this is what he said to his coach. I'm 24 years old, and I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Same job, same ability, same opportunity, same rewards for both men. But the starter pistol goes off, and one man has found his rest in Jesus, and the other is still chasing. The starter pistol goes off, and one feels the pleasure of God and the other is trying to justify his life in a matter of seconds. The starter pistol goes off, and one is working himself into the ground to try to please everyone. And the other sees through all his earthly bosses to his king, and he feels his smile and his pleasure 
as he runs. Our work constantly needs to be reimagined to see its goodness, to see its function, to see its purpose. And my encouragement to you this morning is to let God's story shape your reimagining. Right? Let God's story take you to Jesus to find your rest in Him so that you can really begin to work for Him in everything that you do. And your work and your career can become a calling. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, <clears throat> we thank You this morning like we do every week because on every page of Your Word, You return us to the gospel story. With every page of Your Word, You draw our attention to Jesus and to see His work completed for us in order that we might rest in Him in order that it might truly set us free and enable us to reimagine our jobs and our careers as callings, callings by You in our life, whereby we bring order to chaos and seek to fill Your world with beauty, where we use our callings to serve You in all of life. Father, we pray that You would write Your Word upon our hearts, that You would challenge us even this coming week, even tomorrow morning as we begin again another week of our work. Um, remind us that we were made to work and that we were redeemed to work. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.